turn with me to the book of John. And I've entitled the, the sermon this morning, A Dumb Way to Die. It's building off an, of an app that, anyways, that our, our kids <laughs> used to have for a while. Dumb Way to Die. And, and what we're going to see this morning is Jesus is still in Jerusalem. I've said this a couple of times, but remember, when Jesus went to Jerusalem in John 7, that trip is recorded in John 7, 8, 9, and part of chapter 10. So it's all the same trip that we're looking at. It's immediately following the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what took him to Jerusalem in the first place. And last week, if you recall, uh, Jesus was just giving strong testimony again, strong courtroom type, you know, valid Jewish legal testimony to his identity, just as he had done in John 5. It was a little bit more abbreviated. John 5 was a little bit more extended um, proof of who he, who he is and where he's from. And, and one of the things that we're going to see this morning is he's going to start getting even more direct. And Jesus did that often. He would, he would kind of talk to his crowd, and then you would see what I would call just this ramping up of rhetoric. And he's going to do that even starting this morning. But, but as you get through chapter 8, it's kind of fun. It's just, one of those, it's just one of those chapters where Jesus just starts pouring hot sauce on things. Like It just starts getting ramped up. And we'll kind of see that this morning. He's going to be a little bit more direct. But he's direct because of who he is and where he's from. He has a couple of insights on eternal life. And that's why he's going to do it, because who he is and, and where he's from. Now, what's amazing about Jesus Christ, and I want you to see this distinction, if, if we don't say anything else this morning, he absolutely cares about people, even people who reject him, even people who rebel against him, even people who, in this category, are wanting to actively kill him. They hate him. He loves them. And what you're going to see, and he doesn't come out and say, I love you. That's not how you're going to be able to tell. What you're going to see is that Jesus goes over and above in an abundance of trying to communicate with them and persuade them of what the truth is. And he tries so many different ways to get their attention. And what's tragic about these men is Jesus doesn't want any of them to die in a dumb way. Dying in a dumb way is going to be defined in this passage as dying in your sin Verse 21, verse 24, he's going to say it twice, dying in your sins, plural. We'll talk about why one is singular and one is plural. He doesn't want them to be separated from God for eternity. Even though they hate him in this moment, he loves them enough to stick with them, to make an attempt to explain these things. And then Jesus is going to give the one and only one condition where you can die smartly. You can die in a wise way, not in a dumb way. He's, there's one condition to do that, and we'll pick that up in the message this morning as well. So let's go to verse 21. Jesus is speaking to them. He says uh, to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Notice that he speaks to them again, okay? Again, this, this love pouring through. Jesus is not the prophet Jonah, Remember Jonah's story? He didn't want to go. And when he went, he's like, you're going to be judged in 40 days. You know, peace out. <laughs> and that's what he did. He just, he just gave one message and he was done, right? Jesus is craftily with, with passion and interest in their eternal destinies, looking for ways to explain these things. And sometimes he's repeating himself. A lot of what we find in John 8 is actually repeated from John 5. But you see the heart of Jesus Christ talking to the same audience, giving the same message, trying different ways to get their attention. And so Jesus says to them again, now, he had already told them back in chapter 7 that he was going away, that that they couldn't come where he was going, and and that they were ignorant in terms of where he was going to. And then they they proved it out because in the very next verses following verses 33 and 34 in chapter 7, they're like, What does he mean by this? Is he going to go preach this message to Jews and Gentile lands? Is he going to take a Gentile mission trip? He's going somewhere we can't come. Oh, he must be going to the Gentiles because we're too holy and spiritual to even be with the Gentiles. It's kind of what they were revealing about themselves in John 7. And and one of the things is is we're going to see in this passage, Jesus is repeating this again to them, and they are going to be just as confused, except this time they have another theory of what's going on. We'll see what that is here in a second. But they're simply not asking the right questions. In fact, if you could criticize the religious leaders in Jewish in Jesus's day, these Jewish religious leaders, in one way, in a summary fashion, it's this: they weren't asking the right questions. 
they literally weren't following the breadcrumbs that, that, that God the Father had been leaving for them in the Old Testament. They weren't picking up and following the breadcrumbs that Jesus was leaving for them. They just weren't asking the right questions. And that typically happens when you think you know everything already. And see, that's a problem for many of us. We, we think too highly of ourselves. We think that we've got things down. We think, oh, I've done this before. I can do it again. Or, oh, I already know this. I read that verse one time, so I already know all this truth. And oftentimes, quite frankly, if I can speak to the collective group, we don't know it. We don't understand it. We should be like, as Peter said, like newborn babes desiring the milk of the word. Have you ever seen a baby go for a bottle when they're hungry? It's like, thank God they don't have teeth, man. They might take one of your fingers off. Seriously. They're voracious. They're passionate. They can't get enough. Like in this case, they, they would ask question after question after question, picking up on the main point and everything. That's the other thing we're going to see. Jesus will make this slam dunk point, and they'll be like, wait a minute, what did you say at the first part about a squirrel? Like, what, what was that about? No, that's not what he's saying at all. And we're going to see that as we go forward this morning. They just don't ask the right questions. Jesus says, I'm going away and you will seek me. This, this going away means to go away, particularly undercover with stealth, out of sight. In other words, they're not going to be able to see him where he goes. Now, obviously, he's speaking about his departure from earth. He's going to bring that up in verse 28 regarding his death. He's going to rejoin his father in heaven. And so when Jesus says that, this is really tragic because he says, I'm going away stealthily. You're going to seek me, but you're going to die in your sin. And then he's going to say, and where I go, you cannot come. What's he basically telling him? When I die, you're going to miss it, and then you're not coming to heaven with me. That's basically what he's saying. It's a tragic statement. And you're going to see that they don't really get it. They're not going to get it at all. In fact, um, he, he goes on to say this. This is really a fascinating statement. Because at first, it sounds really positive. It says, oh, it sounds like when Jesus goes away, then they'll seek Jesus. That's kind of what it sounds like. Then you will seek me. I don't think that's what he's saying there, although it is Definitely a possibility that the word itself, seek, describes an intense or emphatic seeking, a looking, a hunting, a, this is lifting up rocks, looking up under rocks. That's the intensity communicated here. And so does it mean that the Jewish leaders would eventually seek Jesus himself? Well, it could be, but, but probably not as, as the majority of them did it. Now we do see in Acts 15, 5, probably even some of the members of this group eventually did believe in Jesus. And they, unfortunately, they were still causing problems in the church because they weren't doctrinally sound in their understanding. But it says some of the sect of the Pharisees, the very group Jesus is speaking to here in John 8, who believed, rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So again, they were saved, but they were doctrinally unsound. They, they weren't sound in their understanding, but they were saved. They had believed in Jesus. And so some of the Pharisees Jesus are talking to did seek him out, did kind of investigate his claims a little bit more, and became persuaded that he was indeed who he said that he was. But what Jesus probably means here, and I, and I think this is probably more likely with this group, this unbelieving group, is that they would continue to seek the Messiah after he was gone. In fact, if you talk to the average Orthodox Jew today, they're, looking, they're still looking for the Messiah. When you tell them that, oh, no, the Messiah already come, they're like, ha, 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 no, 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 you know, silly, silly person. No, 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 that's not how it works. They, he hasn't come yet. They're still seeking him, but they don't realize that they had already missed him. And so I think they're, he's saying, you're not going to seek me personally, but you're going to seek the concept of the Messiah diligently. And that's borne out across the pages of Jewish history. The problem is, is they missed him. They missed the very Messiah that they claimed to be looking for. And they're missing him for much of the same reasons that the Pharisees were missing him here. They're not asking the right questions, in my opinion. They're not taking into consideration. Do you know that we know that passage, Isaiah 53, that, that great passage on the suffering servant? Do you know that in synagogues all throughout Israel, that that, that passage is not even read in the synagogues? They skip right over Isaiah 53. In fact, if you go on YouTube, you can see people doing man-on-the-street interviews and reading a Jew, Isaiah 53, for the first time. And you know what they come away with? Wow, that sounds like Jesus. Go figure. Go figure that God 
cared enough to communicate about what Jesus would do to predict it 700 years in the advance of what he did to convince them and persuade them. It's just tragic. So yeah, they're going to seek him diligently. The problem is this, and this is what Jesus says to them, you will die in your sin. That doesn't mean they're going to die while they're committing a sin. They're, they're going to, that they're committing some dirt, you know, one of the dirty dozen sins, you know, kind of deal that they're, these are religious leaders. They're, in fact, their external righteousness was so impeccable that when Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. What did that mean? Well, the average Jew said, oh my gosh. And, and their response is great. Wow. Does anyone go to heaven then? If the Pharisees aren't righteous enough, does anyone make it? Is kind of the idea. But Jesus says that if you basically, we'll get down to verse 24, what that condition is. But if you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sin. You're going to die connected to this sin. As I mentioned before, well, die just means, it can mean that die a natural death. It can apply to both physical and spiritual death. Remember in the Bible, death simply means separation. That's what the word means. You apply that, you know, to the context of what you're looking at. I believe, obviously, he's talking about not only natural death, but also spiritual death. There's going to be a death where it's, it, they're going to be connected to sin in this way. And one of the things that we'll see is Jesus is going to repeat this phrase three times. Now, when someone, with a slight modification, right? I don't know if you noticed that. Again, I mentioned it in the intro, but in verse 21, he says, you'll die in your sin. Jump down to verse 24. You will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He goes plural there. And I think that's significant. I think there's a reason that he's doing that. But by the way, when a speaker repeats something three times, what do they typically want you to do? Hear it and remember it and capitalize on it. And this is why I think when we look at their response to what Jesus just said, I think this is why Jesus doubles down in verse 24 and says it again a different way because they miss the point. They're like, well, did you say something about a squirrel? Oh, yeah, what? I mean, they're lost. Ceiling fan, light. You know I mean? It's just anything to distract from the main point. They're, they're absolutely lost. Now, the question is, becomes this. Why does Jesus use a singular form here? Why does he use a plural form in verse 24? What is, what is significant? Did he, just, did he just slip? Did he just mean to say the same thing three times? No, I mean, very distinctly, there's a change. There's a difference. And I believe that Jesus is saying this, they're going to experience physical and spiritual death because they will reject God's solution through unbelief. That's the sin. That's singular. They will die in their sin of unbelief. They'll never trust in Jesus Christ. And they will die because they're going to reject God's solution for the payment of their sins. And thus, they're going to be still connected to that consequence, and they'll have to face all of eternity paying that debt off, which they can never pay off. That's the tragedy of hell. That's the tragedy of the lake of fire. Singular, when we talk about singular sin, we've got to understand this. And we've said this many times. It's, if it's the first time you've heard it, it's, it it'll you know, just give it some time to marinate and think through. And I want to show some verses as a result. We as Christians, we get so hung up on different acts of sin in our culture because we're absolutely disgusted by some of the sins that our culture is involved in. Child trafficking, rape, adultery, homosexuality, transgender. I mean, throw in, and I'm not saying that everybody in this room feels that way, but I'm just saying Christendom as a whole is often accused of being overly focused on all these, what I would call members of the dirty dozen sins. But understand this, that no homosexual is going to spend eternity in hell because they are a homosexual. No transgendered person is going to spend eternity in hell because they're transgendered. The only thing that is going to send somebody to hell is rejection of God's solution for their sin penalty found in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for you by dying for your sins and rising again. There is no sin too great or too often committed that Jesus did not die for. And if he paid the penalty in full, what is left for you to pay? That's the message of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, does living out acts of sin impact lives negatively? A hundred percent, 100%. But it doesn't have to impact their eternal destiny. 
That's why I believe he's making a big deal about sin singular. It's unbelief. Do you know that these Pharisees would have never engaged in homosexuality, would have never engaged in adultery, would have never raped anyone or, or kidnapped somebody's child, and yet they will be in hell because they rejected God's solution for their sin problem. That's the issue. We get so distracted by non-issues. The issue is not clean up your life so that you can become a Christian. It's trust in Jesus Christ so your sins can be forgiven. And then guess what? When you do that, the Spirit of God comes to indwell you. And guess what? The Spirit of God's a pretty good teacher the last time I checked. He kind of knows what he's doing. He knows how to motivate. He knows how to encourage. And so we don't want to get distracted by these things. In fact, check out just for a couple of verses here. John 16, 8 through 11. When he has come, speaking of the Spirit of God, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, if the rest of the verses weren't there, you could just see why people would just go off here. See, he's going to convict the world of sin, those dirty, rotten sinners, all those sinners, they need to quit sinning. If they're going to come to church, they need to leave that stuff outside the door. You know, and it's just this mind, it's just over excitement and, and focus on acts of sin. That's not what Jesus is talking about here at all. In fact, he defines it of sin, singular, because they do not do what? Not clean up their lives. It's because they do not believe in me. Because cleaning your life is not going to take care of the sin penalty. Go try that in a human court. Judge, I've killed five people. I do admit to that. But I promise I'm not going to kill anybody else from here forward. It doesn't matter. Past sin requires a consequence. Even if you promise you're going to stop sinning, it doesn't even matter. And in this case, we are condemned to hell. If we got what we deserve, we would all deserve death and hell That's why we need a savior. We don't need more righteousness. In fact, the righteousness we produce on our own is like filthy rags. So it's just the, the mindset needs to shift. Here's the thing. God's got a solution for sin. It's not your religious effort. It's not you trying harder. It's not you regretting what you've done in the past. It's not you promising to not do something in the future. It's by being convinced and persuaded that God took care of the issue 2,000 years ago for you. Will you trust in his solution or not? It's a free offer. Nobody has to go to hell. That's the good news of the gospel. Even the worst of sinners don't have to go to hell. And you say, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's the definition of grace. We're all saved that way. It's not fair that you're going to be there either. Hate to break it to you. That's the truth of the matter. It's actually not fair for you to be there either. Oftentimes, we don't think about that because, again, we're so focused on sins instead of the sin of unbelief. He says, you're going to die in your sin. By the way, John 3.18 supports this. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed. I'll talk about perfect tense in a second. In the name of the only begotten Son of God. Many people are confused. They say, well, if you believe in Jesus, but if you stop believing in the future, you can lose your salvation. We hear that a lot, actually, talking to people. It's a common conception. They they know that the condition is belief, but they think that in some way you have to maintain this belief all throughout your life or you could somehow lose eternal life. Which, by the way, when I say that you can lose eternal life, like red flags, you you should be having like mechanical malfunction in your brain. Because if you can lose something that lasts forever, then by definition, it was not something that lasts forever. Eternal life lasts forever. The moment you believe you have it, it's a present possession. If I can lose eternal life 20 years from now because I stopped believing, then it wasn't eternal life to begin with. I mean, this is just simple word definitions, right, as we're going through. But here's what's so amazing is John 3.18 backs that up. Because He who believes in him is not condemned, present tense, whoever does that right now. But he who does not believe is condemned already, whoever does not believe right now. And then Jesus switches to the perfect tense, beautiful. Because, this is the reason why they're condemned. Because he has not believed, perfect tense, not believed at a point in time in the past with results of unbelief continuing in the present. What he's saying there is this person has never believed. That's the one thing that's going to condemn somebody to hell if they've never believed. And so Jesus is making a big deal about that with his audience. You will die in your sin. 
of unbelief. Now, they should have picked up on that phrase. Wait a minute. Why do you go singular there? What, what do you mean we're going to die in our sin? I, we, we observe. That, that should have been the questions. Wait a minute. We observe the temple sacrifices. Who do you think you're talking to, right? What do you mean we're going to die in our sin? That should have been their question. We're going to see that's not their question as we move uh, forward. The payment has been made for all. This is what's so important to understand. But for every unbeliever, the payment will never be received or applied to their account due to their own personal rejection of the payment. This is what's so tragic about the gospel. As we've said many times, nobody has to go to hell. No one. The payment has been made. The pardon has been offered. All it has to do is be received by faith. And each individual must do that by placing their faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work for them alone. I'm reminded of a story. You know, there was a a man back in the 1830s, his name was George Wilson, 24-year-old man. Some of you may have heard this story before. It's a fascinating story in history. You can actually Google it and read about it. But George Wilson was, was caught trying to rob the mail, and he was endangering the mailman's life. And this is back in the day when they weren't just, you know, drop it in your mailbox, you know, this. They're going across the country. So he tries to, tries to rob the mail, tries to endanger this mailman's life, gets caught, gets arrested, gets sentenced to a certain amount of time in prison and the death penalty. Really tragic, 24-year-old man, death penalty. His case comes across the desk of President Andrew Jackson. And President Andrew Jackson actually has a, has a heart for this young man, and he writes him a presidential pardon. They send it down to the jail. Everything signed, executed on the president's behalf. All George Wilson has to do is take it, read it, and sign it, and he is a free man. And you know, for the first time, and the only time that you can find in, in U.S. history, he refused the pardon. And it became so confusing to the lawyers and to the policemen that this case actually made its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. When finally the Supreme Justice, who was in charge at that time, said, you know what? A pardon has two parts. It's issued and it must be received. And thus, since he wouldn't receive it, he'll remain in jail and he'll remain on death row. Just a crazy story because just like this passage teaches, the Bible teaches there's only two ways to die. There's a dumb one. This is it. Dying in your sin of unbelief, thus paying the penalty for your sins, plural, for eternity. That's the dumb way to die. The smart way to die, Revelation 14, 13 puts it this way. Don't die in your sins, die in the Lord. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works that follow them. You know, the whole concept of forgiveness, and this is so important to understand, the whole concept of forgiveness, when you look at that word in the, in the scriptures, it means to put something away from you. That's what the base meaning of the word forgiveness is. And so when we talk about Jesus is offering forgiveness of sins. You know what he's offering? He's offering to take your sins to put them away from you. And oh, by the way, where were they put? on him. He put them away from you to put them on him so that he would receive the just condemnation for God, not for his sins, for your sins. That's the beauty of a substitute. He took the very penalty you and I deserve to pay, and he provides forgiveness because he's done what? He's removed those sins from you, from being in the vicinity. You know, if lightning were to strike right here this morning, I would want to be over there or back there, right? I'd want to be away. I wouldn't want to be standing right next to where judgment is going to fall. This is the problem. If you die in your sin of unbelief, you are going to be right where the judgment of God is going to fall for all of eternity. The good news of the gospel is you can die in the Lord where he releases you from your sins and then he joins you to himself where judgment has already fallen and it can't fall twice. That's the beautiful nature of the gospel. So we want to die in a smart way. Not in a foolish way like Jesus' audience, because he's going to go on to tell them if they die in their sin, they can't follow him. And he makes this very clear through the Greek language, dunamai, direct and full negation, you don't have the ability to do it. In other words, it's completely impossible to join him where he will be if you die in your sin. And by the way, it's just a strong, strong way in the Greek language to say there's no contingency. There's no second chance. There's a, 
There's a misconception that oftentimes works our way into religious thinking that somehow after you die, you might have an opportunity for a second chance or you might have an opportunity to pay off some of those sins. And I'm here to tell you the Bible doesn't teach that at all. It teaches that it's appointed unto men once to die and then after that, the judgment. And and the question is, where, where are you? Are you in your sin? Are you... Are you where lightning is going to fall, or are you in the Lord? And the way you get in the Lord is by believing that when Jesus died, he died for your sins and rose again. And so this is the message that comes out. In fact, one of the things that we see in John 3, Jesus speaking to one of these Pharisees, Nicodemus, answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And see, this is the kingdom that these Pharisees were looking forward to. They, they weren't going to enter the kingdom, that they were so confident that if anyone made it, it would be them. They were so confident of that. And Jesus, just like he told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You have to have the, the new birth to get into the kingdom. It's not about being religious. It's about trusting in God's solution. That's the answer. And so these guys obviously are missing it. In fact, we're going to look at their misunderstanding now, how they continue to ask the wrong questions in verse 22. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. So you read verse 21, and what, what, what phrase did they pick up on? <laughs> where I go, you cannot come. They just gloss over, you'll die in your sin. It's like they missed the main point. This is, why, again, why Jesus is going to bring this up in verse 24. They clearly misunderstood what he said. And, and it's an ongoing theme with these guys, isn't it? So they thought that Jesus' statement was about going somewhere that they could not come, So Jesus was speaking code about suicide. Remember earlier, they thought Jesus was taking a Gentile mission trip, right, to the the Jews and dispersion and Gentiles. They just are missing the point. So what's ironic and sad is is that they miss this phrase, dying in their sin. That's what they miss. (laughs) The actual main point of what he's going to say. Now, this is what I love about Jesus. I said this at the beginning, but now we're going to see it true. You know, at some point, and I don't know if you've ever gotten to this point where you're trying to explain something to someone and you're just like, tap out, man. I need, like a, I need someone to tap me out because I can't handle one more minute with this person or this group of people because they just don't get it. I've tried 400 different ways to explain this. They still don't get it. Just please, someone just t- take me out. <laughs> it's like, tap me out. Let someone else try it. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he cares enough to remain engaged. He cares enough to pursue. He cares enough to to go after these men who absolutely hate him and want him murdered. He cares that much. It's just amazing to see uh, the love of God. So he's going to retrace his steps. He's going to try to come at it from a different angle in verses 23 through 24. Spoiler alert, they're still going to not get it. Just just so you know, that's where we're headed. They're still not going to get it. That's what's coming. And so what he's going to do is he's going to use an argument now to describe how he is from a different place than they are. And thus, because he's, a, he's from a higher place, he knows more, thus they should trust him. That's going to be kind of his argument here, as we see in verse 23 through 24. And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so now he's going to address not only their origin, where are they from, but where his origin is from. And this is designed to convince them that I'm unique from you guys. You should trust me. That's what it's designed to do. We're going to see, obviously it doesn't work. They, they miss it again. He says, right now, you guys are out of or from beneath. In other words, below in a, in a place of order, in terms of hierarchy, you're from a place that's below. And what he's doing is he's just saying that your origin is below his. Their their origin is below his. He's the creator. They're the creative one. They should have been listening to Jesus because he was at a higher level than them. They can trust what he has to say. Now, if this seems like a harsh statement, just hold on to your britches because it gets a little bit more aggressive as he goes on. I liked uh, Jacob taught Sunday school this morning. He made a really good point. Oftentimes, you know, you read the scriptures, you look at these, what we would view as harsh statements from a biblical author. You know, Paul had them. You can go to Paul's writings and be like, whoa, man, that dude was, man, he was hot there or whatever. 
But, but what Jacob said, it was a really good point, is, is oftentimes when you look at somebody who's under the influence of the Spirit of God, obviously Jesus, the Apostle Paul, they make these statements out of a, a depth of a passionate love for the person because they want to get their attention. This is, a, this is a positive shock and awe campaign. Let me say something that's going to stir them out of this neutrality that they're in. And so you're going to see that he ramps it up. Later in John 8, he's going to describe them as slaves to sin. That goes over like a pregnant pole vaulter. They don't like that one. And then they're going to call them children of the devil. And so he just keeps ramping up this rhetoric until at the end of the chapter, as I pointed out a couple times, they're going to take up stones to stone him. But he's doing this out of a passionate love for these men. We've got to understand that. He's not, he's not trying to body slam these men and put them in a submission hold. He actually loves them, and he's doing anything he can to get them to respond. And I think I want, to, I want us to see that as we come through. So they're from below. Jesus is from above. Basically, he's saying he's unique. He's from a, a higher place than they are. He goes on to say, you are of this world. I'm not of this world. Just a restatement of what he's been saying. Again, he's telling them, your origins are earthly. My origins are heavenly. We don't share the same origins. Thus, you might want to consider you're not seeing everything correctly. But because I'm from a higher origin, I am. You need to trust me is kind of the idea here. Now, why is Jesus saying these things? We're just going to let the text tell us because it's just such a great Bible study word there in verse 24, right? Therefore, therefore, this is, so Jesus says what he says. He makes his statement and then he concludes what they should get from that. Why did Jesus say what he said? Well, he's going to say, therefore, based on the fact that I'm from or out of heaven, I'm the only one truly qualified to talk to you about matters of life, death, and eternity. Again, what did they miss in verse 21? They missed the phrase, you die in your sin. And now Jesus is going to bring it up again. And this is what I love about Jesus Christ. He's single-minded. He's single-focused. He's relentless. And, and be thankful because he's that way with you too. He was that way with these men. He's that way with you. I love uh, an old pastor. I'd love to give him credit. I, can't, I don't know who, I can't remember who it was, but he coined the term, the faithful hound of heaven. I love that picture of God. I, not that I want to call God a dog, but I love the picture of a faithful hound tracking you down. Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy lay back and wait for me to come to them. No, surely goodness and mercy will what? Will follow me, will chase me down, will relentlessly pursue. That's love, guys. That's love. We've never experienced that type of love consistently in our lifetime. Maybe we've come close in a marriage relationship or in a, in a, in a you know, mother, child. Okay, mother, child, that's probably the closest one, maybe. This all pursuit, never ceasing, never ending, just coming, coming, coming after you. This is Jesus Christ on full display right here with men who want to kill him. In fact, think about that. How many times does it take for somebody to do something wrong to you, insult you, belittle you before you don't like that person and want nothing to do with them? Once, twice, very little. That's exactly right. Here's Jesus. I mean, they pretty much told him they want to kill him. Like, I mean, we're running out of fingers and toes. You know, I mean, it's like, and, and, and the dude's still pursuing them. I mean, it's love. That's, that is agape love that we're watching in full display. He's focusing on what they need to hear. He's taking a chance that it's going to ramp them up to a level that's going to potentially take his life early, but he's trusting the Father's timing, but he loves them so much to leave them in their ignorance. And so this is why Jesus goes on to say, you're going to die in your sins. Now he goes plural. And he was warning them because he knows exactly what needs to happen for a person to not die in their sins. What do they need to do? They need to believe in him, trust in him, and his finished work. We're going to see that in the very next phrase. So he says, therefore, I said this to you so that you will die in your sins. And then he's going to say, this is how you avoid it in the very next phrase. And the way you avoid it, and the way that anybody in this room avoids having to pay the penalty for their sins, plural, is the same solution. It's to trust in the one who died for him and paid him in full. That's the solution. And he says, for if you do not, uh, do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, this word if is a third class condition. I've got a lot of other stuff up there. Let me just tell you this. 
Third-class condition in the Greek is just like our if. It's exactly how we would use if in conditional statements. If, maybe so, maybe not. Possibly so, possibly not, right? But if they don't believe in he, what would be the guaranteed outcome? They're going to die in their sins. They're going to die uh, paying the penalty for the plurality of, our, of their sins. And now Jesus is going to clearly spell out the one condition that will prevent them from dying in their sins or will guarantee that they will die in their sins. And this is where religion needs to just step aside and close their mouth. Because religion will come in here and give multiple conditions that you have to do not to die in your sins. And I'm not just talking, you know, sometimes we say religion and people are like, oh, he's talking about the Catholic church. No, I'm talking about Christendom sometimes where you've got messages where you've got to believe in Jesus and turn from your sins. That's not how you get saved. That's not how you gain the righteousness of God. We love us some us. We always want to put ourselves back in the spotlight and take the spotlight off of Jesus Christ. You had it right when you were a kid growing up in Sunday school. The answer is always Jesus. You had it right back then. Now, you, now we've gotten so smart, we become dumb. And we're adding all sorts of things that just bump the spotlight off of Jesus Christ. Guess what? If you keep it there, you're going to know for sure that you're going to heaven. Because your confidence is going to be in what that man did for you, not in what you must do. In fact, if my eternity was based on the simple fact that I got the trash can out to the road on the right day for the rest of my life, I'd go to hell. I can't even remember that. If, if God made it simpler, said, John, you just got to hit this light switch every five years, I'd go to hell. I'd forget to hit the light switch. My alarm wouldn't go off, you know? Apple's always updating your phone. It mixes up my alarm, costs my eternal destiny. <laughs> Thank God my eternal destiny was settled 2,000 years ago. Where, man, I, I didn't even know took my penalty in my place so that I wouldn't have to face it. Here's the condition. Will you trust in what Jesus did for you alone? That's it. If you do, you're going to die a smart person. You're going to die a smart way because somebody else has paid for your sins. You don't have to face it yourself. Amen. And then notice this. It's like this. I mean, what he just said was an absolute bomb anyways, right? It's like, wow, mind blown. Then he, he slides in this phrase here, and you're just like, oh, my goodness. Like, Jesus is so incredible. And it's going to make sense because later he's going to say, I've got a lot more to say. I got a lot more to judge. But the implication is y'all can't even handle what I'm giving you now. It's kind of the idea. But notice how he slides this in there. Check in your, in your Bible translation. I think you'll, you'll see it there. You're going to see the word he in italics. I'll give you a chance to look at that in verse 24. You're going to see the word when he says, if you do not believe that I am he, he is in italics. And I think you see that. All that's doing is the translators are adding the word he for translational clarity. It's designed to help us not read so clunky and expect kind of a predicate on the end of that or whatever, but it actually is not in the Greek. When you see what Jesus said, literally, and I think this brings it out a lot more with a lot more force, he says, if you do not believe that I am, that's significant. We've talked about that. Jesus makes a lot of I am statements, ego, a me, it seems redundant. But what is he going back to? He's going back to Moses, uh, Exodus 3, the burning bush. Moses asked God in the burning bush, who should I say? What is your name? What should I tell the Israelites? Who is sending me? Give me your name so I can tell them your name. And what does he say? I am that I am. You tell them I am sent you. And Jesus is making a claim here. Now, it's interesting. They don't quite get it here. And we're going to see from their question. They're, they're like, can you finish that sentence? Can you give me that predicate, please? Because what are you trying to say? They don't quite get it here. But I think Jesus is obviously saying this because guess what? They don't get it. And then look what Jesus says in verse 58 of the same chapter. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You see how he ramps up the rhetoric? He, he makes it very clear what he's saying this time. And you're going to see they don't like that. Once, once they get it, they actually don't like it. They get pretty upset. Jesus has been talking about his heavenly origin, and now I think he goes a little bit further and identifies himself as the I am, Yahweh himself. Why can you trust Jesus? Because he's Yahweh himself. Guys, I was in the bush with Moses. Guys, I created the world from nothing. Guys, I'm, I'm Yahweh. And unless you believe that I am, 
you're going to die in your sins. Unless you understand who I am and why you can trust me, you're going to die in your sins. There's so much more I could say here, but let me just say a couple more things. Let's go to Isaiah 43. I just want you to see this connection to this passage. Because last week, Jesus was in a courtroom setting in terms of how he was presenting his argument with witnesses. I want you to go with me to Isaiah 43. And I want you to see the connection to even what we looked at last week and the connection to what Jesus just said. And if you haven't read Isaiah 43 in a while, that's your homework assignment. Go read it. Look at the tenderness of God. It's just incredible how he feels about this, this nation that he describes later in Romans, a gainsaying nation, right? A rebellious nation, and he loves them this way. But let's just pick up for sake of time, verse 9. It says, let all the nations be gathered and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Then notice what he says here. Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. In fact, Jesus is about to say that the one who sent me is true. There's so many connections in this passage. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant, servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no what? Savior. See, Jesus wasn't just talking to country bumpkins here. He was talking to the religious elite. And I believe every strategic thing that he was saying was designed to get their attention, point them back to the word of God, which they claim to know, and tie him to these passages to say, wait a minute, did he just say what I think he said? Is he claiming what I think he's he's claiming? Designed to drive them back to the word of God to explore and to investigate further, knowing that they could trust in him. By the way, who can forgive sin but God alone, right? We learned that in Mark. So he says, unless you believe that I am, you're going to die in your sins. What's the implication? If you believe that I am, guess what won't happen? You won't die in your sins. I can release those sins. I can move them away from you is the idea. They kind of understand what he's saying. They're kind of trying to follow his argument here, but we're going to see in verse 25, they don't really get it. And in verse 25, They basically ask this question, who do you think uh, you are? Let's read verses 25 and 26. They said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. And I love this. These are little nuanced things that come out of the text. They said to him, who are you? It's in the imperfect tense. They kept on saying who are you? Who are you? It wasn't a single question. It was a questioning. You go back to when the woman of the adultery were thrown and they just kept repeating the, the question because they like, who are you? Who, oh, wait a minute, wait, before you go, who are you? Who are, what are you claiming? To, is kind of the idea. They just kept on, they kept on describing this question, like, who are you claiming to be? And they'll, they'll say it actually more clearly uh, in verse 53. They're going to say exactly what they meant. Who are you making yourself out to be? That's really the question they're asking here. Ironically enough, they're probably waiting for the end of Jesus' statement. It's almost like, I am, and it's like, <clears throat> and he took a drink of water. You are what? Like, finish your statement. It's kind of the idea. Who, who are you claiming to be? They want him to finish the statement, and it's going to dawn on them. When, by the time we get to the end of the conversation, verse 58, they're going to say, oh, he meant to leave the predicate off. He actually meant to say that he was the I am. He actually meant to say that. And again, they're not going to like that. We'll see that um, at the end. And then Jesus just goes on to say, you know, who are you? He says, he says I'm exactly who I'm telling you who I was. I, he, he, he tells them who he was. He's told them who he was from the very beginning of his public ministry, through his teaching, through his miracles, through his overall manner of life. He's been telling them. What's interesting here, and I don't know if you picked it up, they asked him, who are you? Jesus responds, just what I have been saying to you. And, and in fact, he switches from a masculine pronoun to a neuter pronoun. And so now he's talking about a general truth. He's just what he's been saying. Why does he do that? Well, I believe the essence of Jesus's answer is I'm everything that I've been telling you that I am. And through everything that I'm doing, you should know. Everything that I've been telling you I am through both my words and my actions, you should know who I am, what I am, 
to the nation. And so he kind of switches there. And this is what I kind of alluded to earlier. Jesus has got a lot more to say, but he doesn't say it. In fact, he says, I have, present indicative, right now, I could say a lot more and I could judge a lot more than what I want to do. Say means to talk a lot. I could say a ton more if I wanted to. But he wants to tell them more. But, but again, if you've ever been with somebody that's, that you can just tell is not handling information clearly, that happens to me a lot of time when I would teach math. I could just tell a student was only taking in a couple of, I better just slow down like this. Because if I dump the truckload on them, they're just going to give up and quit. And so I think Jesus is restraining himself from dumping the truckload. We'll see why. There's actually a motivation alluded to in this verse. But he also is, is not dumping the truckload of judgment on them where he's evaluating, separating the, consider, uh, the particulars of a case. I think what Jesus is saying, I could distinguish and clarify so many more things for you and your misunderstanding of the Old Testament scripture, but I'm going to hold off because what we're going to see is this next statement. And very interesting, he starts with the word but. So he's contrasting here. And it's this contrasting point that he's making with this crowd. Although he's got more to say and although he's got more to clarify, he's actually subject to the Father. He's relying on the Father. He's waiting on the Father. He's only interested in accomplishing the Father's mission for him. You know, many people that know a lot love to share exactly how much they know. We know those people. We, we, don't, we try not to be those people, but we know those people. It's like they can't, they can't get enough breaths to get out everything that they know, right? Jesus wasn't that way. Isn't that amazing? The Son of God in your presence, I would, I would probably, I, honestly, I'd probably be like Martha, but, but, you know, in the Martha and Mary story, but I wouldn't be up serving people. I would be trying to do crowd control. I'd be like, dude, shut up, right? Jesus is talking, sit down, be quiet, quit whispering, quit whatever, getting up and down, quit. I, I'd be the crowd control guy and I'd miss everything that Jesus was saying. Cause it's like this value here that he's got, but, but they're not even taking in the little bits that they're getting. And so he can't just keep dunking and dumping the truckload on them here. He's completely dependent on the Father. And again, Jesus Christ distinguishes himself from us. It's amazing how different he is than we are. He who sent me is true. We see that a lot. Jesus sent by the Father. What's really interesting about the word is when you consider the the nuance, I think, of what he's saying is when you're sent by someone other than yourself, it indicates that you're on mission for someone else. Jesus is there for the sake of the Father to lead. We've looked at that in John 5. The things I do, I don't do unless I see my father do it. The things I say, I don't say unless my father says it. Complete dependence on someone else's resources. Again, as we've said, the same exact way we're designed to live the Christian life. Not living, relying upon our own resources, but relying on the Lord Jesus's resources that are provided for us through salvation. And see, one of the things when Jesus says he's sent by the Father, he is literally Yahweh's representative on earth. He is on mission. This is why we're going to see in verse 27, they don't make that connection. They're still missing the connection that he is trying to describe in terms of his origin and his authorization. In fact, he says that the one who sent him, the father is true right now. The idea is that he cannot lie. Everything in Jesus's life, ministry, teaching, manner of life is completely validated by God, the father. You could literally say, God, the father could literally say, I'm God, the father, and I approve this message, right? seriously, as we go into kind of the political time of year, but this is exactly what he says. And this is what Jesus goes on to say, I speak right now to the world, those things which I've heard from him right now. And continually, I say the same exact things as the one who sent me who cannot lie. In other words, guys, I'm not lying to you. I'm not deceiving you. I'm not trying to lead people off the street. I'm repeating the very words of Yahweh right here. And you need to pay attention. I'm from above. You're from beneath. I've got a higher rank than you. I'm him. I'm the man that you've been looking for. They just obviously wouldn't get it. Notice too, a little subtle comment. I won't uh, camp there too long. Notice that he says, I speak to the world, not to the nation. I mean, he is speaking to the nation, but there's something more here. Speaking to the world, this is not only just a, a message for the Jewish nation that he's given, this is a message for us. This is a message for any Gentile that would come behind. And so the overall implication is if the one who sent him can't lie, he only communicates what he heard from him, then he too is not lying. This is the implication that Jesus is making. Now, did they get it? No, I gave you the spoiler alert uh, earlier. Verse 27 tells us pretty clear. They did not understand that he spoke to them of 
the Father. Understanding is that, is that word knowledge that you gain or receive over time. In other words, they could have gained this knowledge had they listened to Jesus, but they refused to listen to Jesus, so they didn't gain this knowledge, and so they're still very confused. What I love this too, again, I keep going back to this, but the heart of Jesus Christ. This word spoke imperfect tense. Jesus kept on making every effort to persuade them of his identity and origin. He kept on speaking to them. Even they realized that. They don't understand that he continued and kept on speaking to them of the Father. You see Jesus' heart behind it. He wants them to understand this. He wants them to get it, and unfortunately, they don't. Many in, audi- uh, many in Jesus' audience never got it. And you know, for the ones that never got it, guess what happened to them when they died? They died in their sin. They died in their sins. They're going to pay the penalty for those sins, and they didn't have to. My urging this morning is, if you're here this morning and you're not sure where you're going when you die, uh, the Bible's got a great message for you. And I, and I hope, and, and, and without saying too early, you've come to the right place this morning because we want to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ and what he did for you and what he accomplished. That means you don't have to pay for your own sin because you have a Savior that did it for you 2,000 years ago. And the question, the exhortation of the Bible, will you trust in what he did for you alone? Stop thinking about yourself. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus Christ did for you. It's not about your sacrifice or commitment to God. It's about his sacrifice and commitment to you. There's so many other ways we can say that. But again, go back to your childhood Sunday school days. Jesus is the answer. His work is the answer. And just make a hard stop right there and enjoy it. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word this morning. I love to just take time and look at the Lord Jesus and to try to just understand his heart, not only for his audience, but for us uh, individually. Lord, we just, we just rejoice. We're men. We're men and women. Who are we, as the psalmist said, that you're mindful of us? That is just something I, I don't know if we'll ever fully understand, but boy, we just rejoice to know that you tell us that you think of us, that you stoop your ear, you bend your ear low, you, you're watching us, you love us, you desire to communicate with us. Lord, I just uh, am so grateful again that Jesus did what he did, and may we find our hope and confidence in him alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.